Good morning. Great to see you guys. I'll tell you what, we have uh, some precious people back there. Taylor, who's getting baptized today, along with Avell. And, uh, of course, Taylor and Avell have uh, quite a history going back a few years ago. And, and uh, uh, Avell just started talking to him about the Lord. And we'll let you explain it later on today as we have the baptism. And you have a bunch of people here today. That's your family. Mom and Dad and, uh, I think, brother and sister and... Um, I mean, a whole crew. So, great to have you guys today. We really enjoy having your presence here. We really do. And, uh, of course, Taylor, very special, Cassandra. And so, uh, we, we thank you very much for being here. We are in um, the book of Revelation. And uh, quite a book to be uh, coming in on if you haven't been here <laughs> for the first few weeks. But, actually, you'll be able to follow uh, real easy. Uh, we have bulletins here, in case you don't have one. There are other ones here that follow the outline. I've got an outline up on the, the TV's screens, but uh, some of that you can't read too good because I've got pictures behind it. The reason I put the pictures there today was because it's Ephesus, and as it is today in, in its ruins. So anyway, um, if those help you, that gives you an outline of what we are going to be doing in our message uh, this morning. And I probably won't be as long as I usually am because we have other things going on today. We have the uh, baptism and then we have the lunch afterwards, so it's a big day, special day. And uh, we are pleasured to be able to do that. Um, Revelation really is about... Jesus Christ. It reveals the very person of Jesus, who He is. We just came off of the most magnificent, marvelous, matchless view of Jesus Christ by the Apostle John that you could see. It is described by Him. We don't have a picture in our Bibles that we can turn to, but something more powerful, the very Word of God that is being described here in uh, the person of Christ. It's must. It's a must to know, to be able to see that vision of Christ that existed there. You know what it does? It gives confidence. It gives us confidence in our Lord, in that He has complete sovereign control as He is in the midst of His church. He's in the middle of His people. He's a judge. And He's also a high priest. The great high priest who intercedes for us. So at any rate, we've seen that vision of Christ. Now He has a message to the seven churches. I'll, I'll give you an outline of the whole book of Revelation. It's in three points. And everyone here can get it. Past present, future. That's really what Revelation does. You say, how can you outline it like that? Well, God did. This is actually inspired outline. You know the outlines that I put on the bulletin? You're, this is going to surprise you, but those are not inspired outlines. <laughs> they just came from me. But the inspired outline that God gave us is found in Revelation 1, verse 19. Here's what He said. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's past tense. That was the vision of Christ. And the things which are, which is chapters 2 and 3, dealing with the message to the seven churches. So we have the past, we have the present, and then what does he say? And the things which will take place after these things. From Revelation 4 through the rest of the book then, is going to be dealing with future things. Things that will happen in the future. And that's how Revelation is outlined. So if somebody asks you, what's Revelation about? Past, present, future. And you won't get in trouble with that. That's it. Okay, um, you remember that we noted that there are seven churches that John, the apostle here, is writing to there's seven churches. He's going to give seven messages, a message to each one. And really seven 
is a number you will see over and over in Revelation and it's completeness, it's wholeness, it's fullness. That's the idea. Seven churches is representing, even though it's legitimate, real churches that existed at that time, it's also representing all churches at all time. From the early days of the church all the way up to even right now. It even represents us independently. Even this church, we fit into one of these molds, or maybe all of them, that was put forth. Anyway, it is to be understood literally for what it's said, but also universally we can see some things that help. We just don't want to read into the text and make it say things that it's really not, so we have to be very careful when we say that, and also individually we can be encouraged and warned and take in the promises. So, what we're going to do today is the letter that was sent to Ephesus, and we will have uh, seven points as you have on your outline there. Uh, let's stand in honor of God's Word. He's speaking to us here today, folks. This is God's Word. This is really His Word that He gave to us as we read it here today. Verse 1 of Revelation 2 to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that which hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord, we just read Your Word. No man really wrote this on his own. John wrote it down with pen, but You gave it to him. This is from You to that church. But it's also to the body of Christ all over the world, even today, and even to this church, and even to each individual here. You are relaying a message to us. May we take it seriously. In your Son's name, Amen. amen. So we uh, start chapter 2 here. And what we do in this is we just break it down. We take it basically verse by verse and almost word for word. First thing that sticks out in my my mind is as we look at this, it's an address to the angel of the church. Seven points in this outline, and to the next seven churches, basically it's the same outline each week. I kid you not, it's almost the same setup. It starts off with um, two, who is it two, and then uh, describing the characteristic of Christ, and and then the commendation, and then uh, the complaint against them, and so on and so forth. If you see that on your, your outlines. It says angel, and the word for angel in the original language in the Greek, with the one where Revelation was written by John, it's angelos. Angel, angelos, uh, from which we get our word, angel. And is it literally an angel? Well, usually in the Bible, when you see angel, it's literally an angel. Those spiritual beings that do not have bodies, and very well, it could be that. 
Also, it is put forth, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it could be that it is really a messenger, which is really what angelos means, messenger. Angels come, they give a message, right? They're messengers. Well, in this case, it could be, in a sense, not that spiritual being, but a human being, that is a messenger to each one of these churches. As you have seven of these messengers, angels, that is given here. That's very possible. We move on. You get the idea, right? So, it's to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus. Okay, uh, let's take that apart. Ephesus. What about Ephesus? Is there an Ephesus today? Well, you see the picture up there? That's really Ephesus. You see, there's not that bustling city that was happening whenever John wrote this letter to them. By the way, John had been a pastor at the church in Ephesus. The same one who's writing this. So that means a lot, doesn't it? Uh, If you go there today, that's what you'll see. Ruins. And that's why when you hold on uh, till till the end, you can see why uh, God makes a... He has to make a judgment. Ephesus was taken out. Church was taken out. So, whenever we see that part about the lampstand, it really makes sense when you look at this in this case. But Ephesus at the time, one of the great cities in the world. It was maybe the greatest in uh, Asia at the time, Asia Minor. They worshipped Artemis, which was also known as Diane of the Ephesians. Had a great temple there. They worshipped this goddess with great devotion. That's what the city was about. That's what they really were known for. Matter of fact, um, I think in the next uh, slide, it probably is showing the um, the temple. That's that's in ruins, but it was one of the great seven wonders of the world. The ancient world. You ever heard of the seven wonders of the world? You've heard of that, right? This was one of them. Their temple. So if I can take this to that right there. Not too clear, but that's some of the remains of that great temple 2,000 years ago. It's in ruins today. But anyway, it was a center of religion. It was a cult worship It was a strategic commercial center. It was a seaport of Asia Minor, a great seaport there in close to that area. Paul the Apostle is strategically investing his time. All of his efforts are put into this city, this church in Ephesus, because that's really where he would go to. There was no time to go to the small towns he could say, well, they got gypped. Well, no, the people that, whenever he would start a church, then they would go out and start churches in those small towns that were around. And then they would go forth. To, and that's how it spread out. That's basically how churches got here in, in America. You know, they, they plant churches. And that's really a good thing to do. Well, where he would go would be to the major cities, set it up, and then he would preach and then move on to the next city. He was in Ephesus for almost like three years. It's like longer than any place else that he would stay. He had to move on. He had to go to the world, right? But in Ephesus, he stayed there. There's something special happening. I want to tell you, they had pastors there that are from the Hall of Fame. I'm telling you. They not only had... Paul, who started it and was a pastor there, but also Priscilla and Aquila. Do you remember them? Out of the book of Acts. It's where Paul, you know, more or less met them and they set up the church there. Apollos, who was a great speaker, powerful speaker. And then there was Timothy, who pastored in Ephesus. First, second Timothy. Paul taught him all great doctrine. And then, of course, John the Apostle, who comes along later and pastors at that church. 
There was also in church history in the second century you have Polycarp. Guess where he pastored at? Right there also. Man, do they have great doctrine. That's one of the key points we're going to be looking at today. Positively and negatively. Mostly it's positive, but what we're seeing here that it's a rich heritage that Ephesus had, starting with Paul and then on down through for decades there. So that's part number one of our outline. You ready to move on to the second one? That was an address to who? To the church of Ephesus. The angel and, and then Ephesus is what we've been looking at. Now we stay in verse 1. And our second point is the characteristics of Christ. And all seven letters are going to have certain characteristics of Christ. Basically, out of chapter 1, where it gave a vision of Christ, gave descriptions of Him. Well, it says here, the one who holds the seven stars, what's that mean? In His right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Say this. How do you read God's Word? Just break it down. You say, what does that mean? Here it is, the one who holds the seven stars. What's the seven stars? You know, Surely not the stars that we see in heavens at night. No. We were already given that answer back in chapter 1. He says in verse 20, the last verse, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which we just talked about. The messengers are angels of the seven churches. And what are the seven golden lampstands? Seven churches. So, you don't have to rely on my opinion here. What we have here is the characteristics of Christ. What does He do? Number one, He holds the seven stars. Number two, He walks among the churches. So two points under number two. Is this easy? So far, so good. Seven stars. What's the deal with that? Well, it's dealing with control and possession. He holds the seven stars in His right hand. The hand of power and authority. And He holds. He's in control of the messengers. The angels. How about the messengers being possibly pastors of those churches? As He's giving that message to them. It gets to them somehow and then they give it on. Possibilities. We're just... Showing that here's what it could be. Anyway, he has control as he holds the seven stars in his hand. And then, um, by the way, somebody said, and I wrote this down, it was four thing, four verses that are given credence to the seven stars. In chapter 1, verse 16, it speaks of the seven stars being in the right hand, dealing with security. In chapter 1, verse 20, seven stars being on the right hand of the Lord Jesus. And that speaks of support. Uh, the third one would be chapter 2, verse 1, which we just read here today. He's holding the seven stars in His right hand. And it's speaking of control there. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, He holds the seven stars uh, uh, in, his right, in His right hand again. He has possession. He has control. He has security for them and support. Aren't you glad that you understand who Christ is? And there's His characteristic taken right out of chapter 1. Chapter 2 we see it. Chapter 3, four times it's mentioned. So, the seven stars. How about the seven golden lampstands? Well, we've just been given uh, the definition of that. They are the seven churches. Um... He's in, what is he doing? He's walking among the seven churches. Does that give you comfort? He walks among the church. Have you ever heard this? Christ is here with us today. Somebody said, Where? Where's he at? I'll see him. Well, his, his presence is here. First of all, His presence lives in each of us who trust in Him, right? So, 
But He is with us. He walks among us. Individually, He walks with us every day, doesn't He? By the way, it speaks of the great high priest. I mentioned the great high priest earlier. He is the great high priest. What does that mean? Well, He intercedes for the church. He's the go-between between God and the church. Right? That's what a priest does. He does priestly duties. Did you know in the Old Testament we had a picture of what the priest is about? The priest would daily minister, serve in the holy place of the tabernacle later on in the temple. You still with me? What would he do there? Well, you have lampstands in there. Or candlesticks, lampstands. And what they were responsible for was to light those lampstands. To supply oil to those lampstands. You've got to have substance. You've got to have something in there that will burn to put, bring on the light, right? And then thirdly, they would trim the wicks. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's what they would do. Do you know what Christ is doing? We don't have anybody going into the tabernacle and doing that today for us, do we? Well, it's Christ who is our intercessor and He's being uh, amongst us and He's trimming us. He is lighting us. He's supplying us the oil, the Holy Spirit. And that's how we function. He says that He's the light of the world. And then what does He proclaim to the church? You are the light of the world. We have Christ in us, the Holy Spirit, which is the oil burning in us. And we are the only light that the world has because we have the only truth. We are a light that's set on a hill. The hill looks down upon the city, the nations. It's dark. We are the light. We are the only ones that have the light. All believers in Christ for 2,000 years. So anyway, He cares for His assemblies of His saints, doesn't He? So what have we had so far? Well, we had to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Then we have Christ and being described, which is dealing with holding seven stars and walking among the golden lampstands. Us. Now, and literally, the seven churches that were the seven cities in Ephesus. Number three now. What He does... We've seen Christ there and using those characteristics. He commends this church at Ephesus. A church that had been taught so well. Great teaching. Doctrine means teaching. They had the best of the best. And they did it. I mean, they believed it. And they taught it. So, no matter how bad, any of these seven churches that we see he still starts off with a commendation. I think that is something to keep in mind. Because God doesn't right away start jamming it down and says, you left your first love. No, He starts off with what was good about them. What He had done through them. Doesn't He do that graciously and mercifully with us? Even when we have something that He could have against us, he always sees what He's done in us. So, He commends them before He condemns them. That is coming up. He commends them in verse 2 and verse 3. And I'm also going to include verse 6 in this point 3 of His commendation. So, what is the substance in our third point? His commendation of Ephesus. I really like you for this and this and this. It's a seven-fold part here of this, of this point three. He starts off with this. Commends them. And three verses. There's only one condemnation verse, but three verses of commendation. I know your deeds. Works. I know your deeds, what you've done. So this is dealing with their service. Their service for the Lord. And He is the judge here as He looks at this and He judges them correctly in that they were serving 
working church. Number two. Hey, we move on to the next one. Hey, we're going along. We're in verse two already, right? And your toil. Toil here would be a word that is interesting because the word for it's a word for labor or to strive so much or exercise exercise to the point of exhaustion. So it's your toil. Not only their works, but their toil in it. They went wholeheartedly. Uh, They made themselves sweat, exhaustion, physically, mentally, spiritually. They were a working church. This is a real church. Quite an example. So they toiled, they worked, they served there. Um, The church of our time and any time always has a, I think, a bent to just sit down, come to church on Sunday, and then that's it. Nothing else. There's no activity in their lives. Come to church again the next Sunday. Might sing a little bit, but really they're, they're not active in living for the Lord and serving Him. And I think... This is something, as we read here, they had deeds and they toiled. They sweated in that sense. Maybe physically, yeah, absolutely. A lot of things they needed to do is like sweat of the brow. They toiled. Deeds. And look at this. And perseverance is the next word. That means stickability. To stick to it. Uh, A lot of people start in the church and they run against uh, certain trials. Situations become a little rough and tough and what do they do? They quit. They either quit church or they quit serving, quit doing anything, quit worship, whatever it is, they quit. They don't continue because I can guarantee if you're in the church and you are doing deeds and toiling... I will tell you that there will be persecution against you. Oh, you're one of those goody-two-shoe Christians. And for the most part, most of the world does not like Christians. I know you don't like to hear that, but if you're living it out, they don't like it. Why is that? Because it convicts them. Because they know that their life is not like that. In some way, they're convicted. They'd rather you be like them living like the devil because now they don't feel so bad. They persevered though through many different trials, personal things that came in their lives and they kept on going. They stuck with it. They endured. What's the next one? And that you cannot tolerate evil men. That means there were evil men coming into the church. What? Wicked, evil people. Are there actually wicked, evil people in the world today? Yeah, but sometimes they disguise themselves and come into the church. And they're really not true. And you know what? The Ephesians were so good in doctrine that they could discern who those were and they would not let them allow them to come in and teach wrong things. Um... Go to Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. Remember whenever I said Paul started this church? Paul later, you know, after he left, he later came close to Ephesus, but couldn't go all the way into Ephesus. He could have, but if he would have gone there, he knew that he would not get out of there. He had an appointment. And so he called the elders to meet him right there, or like right at the boat. Here's what he says in Acts 20:29. 20, now this is long before John writes this letter to the Ephesians. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. To draw away the true believers, there would be perverse things, but it would be doctored up where it would sound good and people would be tempted to follow that. 
And he says, I know. As soon as I leave here, that's what's going to happen. He knew it. They were right in the heart of Ephesus. And all the cities back at that time. They were cities that really were, for the most part, very evil, very wicked. A lot of different kinds of people there. Paul knew that people would be tempted to come into the church and try to spout their own teachings. And so he says that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test, we're back in Revelation, those who call themselves apostles. John is writing this in 90 to 95 AD at the end of the first century. He is the last of the apostles. No more apostles are going to be in the church. The apostles are the foundation. Christ being the very cornerstone, Ephesians says that apostles are ones that are built upon Christ that were related to Him in His ministry. You think of the twelve and then later it was less one, that would be Judas. They added one and then it was the twelve again and Paul was an apostle. Barnabas was considered to be an apostle in a little bit different way. And other people were called apostles. That's one sent. But ultimately, we think of those apostles that wrote Scripture. Revelation is what? Is it the first book, middle book? It's the last book in the Bible. There's a reason for that. There's no more of those kind of prophets, no more apostles that are writing Scripture. If they are, where are they? Because we've got to get that because we've missed some things. Aren't you glad we have this? Jesus said, or in, in Revelation here, at the end, that this is not to be added to or to be taken away. And not only is that Revelation, but He's speaking of the whole Bible. So this is why we have the last book. This is why John is the last apostle. And there are some coming into Ephesus that will be saying, hey, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. So that means they have an authority, don't they? They're men like us, but at the same time, they were not apostles. And the Ephesians said, no, you're not. You're not an apostle. There can't be apostles. The apostles have already been here. They've done their thing. They, and of course, they were writing at that time to the Scripture. John is the, writing the very last letter. There are apostolic churches today that call themselves being ruled by apostles. And they are given the very same level of authority as the apostles that we know. Therefore, they are getting new revelations. And they'll tell you that. Well, my Bible says it's not to be added to. We have everything we need. Matter of fact, it's more than we can ever even, even read and understand thoroughly. We've given all we need. That's what God has done. He's given us everything we need. He's given us the Word of God. He's given us the Spirit of God. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. So there it is. That is why he would say, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. They tested them, proved it out that they cannot be the apostles. And so, they know truth. See, churches that are weak today will let anybody come in and teach and tell them things that are prophecies, things that aren't necessarily coming from the Word of God. Matter of fact, if it says, you can say, well, I already know that. That's already in Scripture. You're not giving me anything new. If you give me something new, I already know that here's how I discern. This guy's not real. Because if it's new, then it's outside of the Bible. Do you see how easy it is to discern? If somebody says, I'm apostle so-and-so, and I met many of those whenever I uh, used to run the store. And they would come in and they would call themselves, I'm apostle Joe whatever, right? And I'm thinking, this guy's lying. I already know. You know, I've got already made up my mind. You know, and they're, they're speaking things that, you know, you go... Ooh, that, that is really strange. That is not from Scripture. We test everything by what? The Scripture. This is how we discern. If you know the Word of God, you can see a, counterf a counterfeit in a moment's time. 
You know, you don't have to study all of the stuff that they believe. All you have to do is study the Word of God. It's like a dollar. Paper currency. The guys who are experts at it, they don't go around trying to study all the counterfeits. They know what that dollar looks like. And they say, I, no, I never look at that. All I have to do is test it off of this. I know whether it's true or not when I see it. No, this is, not, this is a false dollar. So, that's how we test it. It's because of the truth of the Word of God there. No secret to it. It's just that you know it. These people knew that. Do you see what they do? And they're testing apostles. They're testing these people who are wicked and evil who come in there that look like sheep and they're not. And, you know, to come in and teach. And you have perseverance, that's a stickability, remaining around. The, the word in the Greek is hupomone, to stick around. To remain under is the idea. And have endured. So we've seen that. There must have been a lot of tests that the Ephesians had. They're still there. You know, I look at a lot of you people, I've known you for many, 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 many years, and you know what has happened? You've stuck around, not only in this church, but you have stuck around in Christ. You stick around. Yeah, do you have battles? And do you have times that you go through that are really rough or very dry? You betcha. How many people here have had deserts in their lives? Man, have I ever had it. And, but the thing is, you still know that you persevere. And you persevere because God preserves you. We can't even persevere on our own. That's how great God is, isn't it? And He stands amongst us. You know, that's positive, isn't it? They endured. You know what these people in Ephesians or Ephesus? They're true Christians. And Jesus is saying this in verse 2 and 3. I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, your toleration. You don't tolerate and you put to the test those who are apostles. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, for the sake of Christ. And have not grown weary. You labored, you toiled. And you're not weary though. You feel tired. Sometimes you feel beaten. And you really take it from other people sometimes, but you persevere and you keep on going. And he's doing a, he does not let you fall so far that you can't get back up and you stay there. God is so good that he brings us right up with his people. So we see here that. That's quite a commendation that he has. Two full verses of it's a sevenfold commendation that he gave them. God thinks a lot of Ephesus, doesn't he? Well, let's go to the fourth one. We've seen now the commendation. You know what? I have not been. That went up to two, right? There's the third one. That's what we just did, right? The commendation. That's quite lengthy. It took a whole slide. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. You've, you've got it on your bulletin, right? Four is down there at the bottom. You just can't read it. That's that's the uh, picture of the um, their temple. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. That's the ruins of the seventh wonder. One of the seven wonders of the world. Okay. Now... Very quickly, the Lord Jesus now moves from commending the church at Ephesus to a criticism. It's a criticism of the church. You remember that He has eyes like flaming fire. We saw that in that picture. You know, burnished bronze, eyes like flaming fire. He is a judge. He sees all the good things that they've done in Christ. He also sees the things that are not are in Christ. It's like X-ray omniscient vision that he has. Goes right through to the truth. Aren't you glad that he's the judge and not some human being? That would be terrible, wouldn't it? To see what no one else sees can almost scare you. But you know what? You're not to be scared of Christ. But it should bring us to our knees in a true fear of God 
knowing that He is measuring us. He's seeing us in what we really are. We don't even we can't even judge ourselves correctly, can we? We usually overestimate ourselves. But sometimes we underestimate too and you know really condemn ourselves when we really shouldn't be condemning ourselves. What Christ wants to do is to show us he wants to convict us so that we would confess that and say yes Lord you're right. Please take that from me because I want to honor you. I really do. Anybody here that's a Christian would really say that. I really want to honor Christ. I know I failed, but I want Him to take those failures and turn them into something good. You guys for that? That's what we like. Okay, well, you know what? Did they have activity in that church? Oh, man, did they have activity. You remember? Deeds. Toil. They taught doctrine. They taught and they taught and people knew what they believed. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Do you think they did? Yes. Do you think they were great apologists at Ephesus? Yes. The Apostle Paul, John, Paulos, Polycarp, all those teachers as time went through. Well, activity is not the same as love. They got to where they were not motivated by love. They kept the activity. They had all the programs that they did. But there was no love in what they did. And that's where Jesus now shifts to. And all He has here is one sentence. But, in verse 4, I have this against you. What? What? Are you kidding me? After all we did... That you left your first love. Left my first love. What? What's your first love? Well, I think first of all and most importantly, it's love for Christ. What is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's taking in all of that. But it starts with Christ. Because if you don't have love for Christ, who are you not going to have love for? Also. Others, right? So it's speaking of their love for Christ. They've lost their love and devotion to the Lord Jesus. They had a honeymoon with Him for several years and then it was like started growing cold. It wasn't overnight. It takes a while. And all of a sudden you lose your first love. And you know what? The Ephesians would have been one of the most loving churches that you would have ever want to have attended. But it really wasn't. Because even though they have great doctrine, they no longer really had that kind of love for the Lord that they once had. I want you to look at something in the Old Testament. This is remarkable. When you think of Solomon, what do you basically think of? A wise king. Who's good? Who's a believer? Let's take a look at that. First Kings... Chapter 3, verse 3. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. David was a man after... God's own heart. He adored the Lord. He loved the Lord. All you have to do is read the Psalms and see his heart. Did David sin? Yeah. As a believer? Yes. Grace of God, the mercy of God. There were consequences, but he's a true believer. He handed that truth to Solomon. He loved the Lord. He walked in his statutes. You've probably read the rest of that 3 and 4, but I'm going to turn to chapter 11, 3 through 6 and see the detail of this. First Kings chapter 11, verse 3. He had 700 wives. 
I can't even imagine that. <laughs> Princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. So he went after the Sidonian god. Well, he had a wife that was Sidonian. And after Milcom, the god, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. So he had a wife that was Ammonite. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. Man, he's getting every country around there, isn't he? His wife was Moabitess. On the mountain which is east of Jerusalem and for Molech. Here's another one, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Ammon, Moab, Sidon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Needless to say in verse 9, Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. My, Solomon... As good as he was, the wise King Solomon, no one wiser than Solomon. God granted him that gift. That's remarkable, isn't it? There are others throughout Scripture the same way. Lost the first love. Are we saying that they lost salvation? No, we're not saying that at all. We've already seen that they're believers. They're true. They have right doctrine. It was in their heart. I do want to tell you, that it is 30 years now later after Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Does that make a difference? Yeah, because some of those have passed on. You know what? You've already got a second generation here going. Sounds like the book of Judges, doesn't it? As soon as Joshua died, there was another generation after that. They were following God and then the next generation didn't we're a heartbeat away from losing our first love or losing the joy of the Lord. Like that, it can happen. Enthusiasm that they had years ago is no longer there. They're still busy. They're still doing the things there. You'll see a lot of churches, they're, they're busy, they're doing things, and planting trees on Sunday mornings, skipping church, but planting trees for the community to make it look good. <laughs> had to throw that one in. But they're busy. They're working. But where's their love for the Lord? Well, we're going to make an impact on the community. I have nothing against that. You can do that any day of the week. Why would you quit worshiping the Lord to go out and do things where the lost world doesn't even know what you're even doing anyway? And they could care less. So, that's some of the things that have been done in this city with certain churches I would totally disagree with. They lost their testimony. The Ephesians did. This, this generation that they had, they had days of bright growth, life in that church at that time whenever John writes in the 90's. Uh, they were barren. Uh, they lost the first love. It was, it was a dead church. Doctrinally, it was still there. They were still teaching truth. The Word of God. Often that doesn't even happen. Ignatius wrote in the 2nd century, that's the 100's A.D., very soon after this, Ignatius, an early church father, said as he wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote a letter to them, Ignatius' letter to the Ephesians, they repented for a while, but then were lost to Mohammedanism. That's the Muslims. They turned to Muslim belief with the theology that they had they lost their first love 
Well, we go to verse 5 as we go back to Revelation and we're getting near the end of it here. Hang on. Right there. Verse 5 says, Therefore, remember. And the title I have of this today is Remember, Repent, Repeat. And it's found right here in verse 5. Therefore, because I have this against you, because you left your first love, therefore remember. Remember what? From where you have fallen. They had fallen. Where were they at? They were up here. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember the cross. Where do you look back at? The cross of Christ. What did He do? He died for your sins. You look at the cross and you realized, I was a sinner, lost and condemned to hell for eternity. And then because of that blood of Christ, I trust in them a sacrifice. Because I believe in that, because He gives me that grace and belief, I'm no longer condemned. I have entered in to the realm of the family of God and I have eternity. I have eternal life starting at that point where your life changes. And so that's what's going to be demonstrated in the baptism today is Taylor and Avell will be putting that forth. It's just a picture of what their lives were. They were dead in their sins and they came alive because of what God did. Well, the command to the church there is that they remember from where they have fallen and repent. Repent means to change your mind. You're thinking about who Christ is. The thinking about what you used to see as joy and now you see it as sin and you do not rejoice in that sin anymore. I want you to look at Jeremiah 2.2. It's really helpful. Uh, As we were talking about this remembering and, and repenting, but... Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2 says this, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of His harvest, who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Verse 5 says, What injustice did your fathers find in me? They went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. You follow emptiness, you will become empty. That's the idea of Jeremiah there. They were fallen, but yet here they are, they're told to repent. And we should be willing to repent every day. We repent when we come to church. We confess who Christ is, how we fall short. We repent of our sins, don't we? Because we know we all battle sin. We lose some battles. Now back to Revelation. What does he say? Remember, repent, and what? I've got in there, repeat. He says, do the deeds you did at first. Whatever you are doing, repeat that. This is what our Christian life should be about. Remember. Remember Christ. Repent. And it's an ongoing daily thing. Repent. And repeat what you know you have done, what you you should be doing now, that you did it first. And then he says, or else. Now here's his threat to the church. I am coming. Do we fear God? Fear means to reverence and to be in awe of God. To know that He is the awesome Almighty. Not to take Him lightly. He's a God that we adore. Don't take Him lightly. He says, I'm coming to you and will remove. What's He going to remove? The candlestick. By the way, are we in number six? Yes. The threat to the church. Did you know that the in the Old Testament removal of Israel happened in one of the judgments? Uh, take for instance, they were deported to Babylon. Or many of them were killed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. They were removed out of there. He removed their lampstand. He did put it back. 
They failed again. But the light of the world showed up. Jesus Christ. He has lampstands today. All the churches throughout the world. We stand for Him, don't we? Folks, this is serious stuff. We saw what Christ looks like in His judgment and in His great high priest intercession. We also see now what He says. You did this, this, and this, and this. I commend you for that. But I've got a problem. You left your first love. You're not motivated by loving Christ. You're not motivated by His love for you. You keep repenting or I'll remove the lampstand in Ephesus. You know what? He did. He removed it. All you have there is ruins. There's the ruins of the theater that was unearthed. And saw the temple. We saw columns that are there. There's no city there. There's no church there. It hasn't been for many, many, many years. God said He would remove the lampstand. He did. That was a great church. Wow. Here's the promise to the church. Remember verse 6, we talked about the Nicolaitans, or actually we didn't. The Nicolaitans actually means to rule over. Uh, Nike is in that word. Nicolaitans. Nike means to overcome, uh, overrule the laitans, or the laity, to rule over the people. They were already getting in to having a hierarchy in the church where they were actually ruling over the people. We're all one. Pastors were not to rule over the people. The elders. There was not to be hierarchies where you have different levels all the way down to the priest that's over at that local church. But they had it. It was starting to develop then. In the next few hundred years, it was developed fully. And that has always been really the... I guess you could say the the problem with the church down through the years. So, um, it could have been maybe one person that got a group of followers in Ephesus also and he was very immoral. But he would dress it up and make it look good and people would follow him. Because of the culture they had been, it would be easy to follow into. They forgot what the truth was. Remember in verse 6 though, you know who you know the deeds of the Nicolaitans, what they do, and I hate it, and you hate it. So they discerned them. Verse seven, we're done. This is to every one of it. This starts with me. He who has an ear, let him hear. If you have ears, and he's talking about not physical ears now. What is he talking? The spiritual ears. Listen, he says, if I want you to listen to this, listen. Let him hear what the Spirit says, God's Spirit, to the churches. Did you hear it? Here's what the Holy Spirit is saying, along with what Jesus has given. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You know what? He doesn't hang us and leave us hanging right there with that condemnation. What does He do? He gives the grace. He gives the ending story. This is what we get to walk out on here today. Have you heard the message of repentance? But then do you hear the message of promise? We always give the grace and the promise, don't we? That's the good news. If you trust in Christ, you have eternal life. If you repent, if you turn from your wicked and evil ways and your sinful ways, which every man has that problem, that's his nature, Christ in your life gives you eternal life. That word overcomes, I don't have time to go to it, in verse, but First John chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 says, here's the overcomer, the one who believes. The one who believes. Are you an overcomer? If you've trusted Christ and His sacrifice and desire and repent and desire to follow Him, you are an overcomer. That's the overcome. He says, here... To the ones who are believers, overcomers, 
I'll give you the tree of life. It's for eternity. It's, in the, it's the paradise of God. Where was that at originally? At the Garden of Eden. It returns in eternal life. And it's even much better than the Garden of Eden because we cannot sin there. They did. And that, they lost it all. But it's back. That's what He promises. Isn't that great? Isn't that gospel? That's grace, isn't it? I will grant to eat of the tree of life, eternal life, which is in the paradise of God, the abode of God. We will see Him as He is and be like Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this day, this precious day that we have special. We thank You for the people that have come. and We just give You glory for that. And may this Word of God make a penetration into our hearts and as You speak to us. And that we would conform more and more to You and then having our eyes on that reward, the tree of life, uh, seeing Christ for who He is and having all the great love for Him even today. May we honor You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.